0: Alba Wheels Up is on a mission to be the best freight forwarder and customs house broker on the market. Our expert knowledge and experience provides the perfect solution for your freight forwarding needs. When you know more, your clients do better. Alba Wheels Up, success delivered. To learn more, visit us at albawheelsup.com. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. Mento LLC Trade Consulting focuses on issues of duty minimization, recovery, and elimination, while also helping our clients with trade compliance issues of both the import and export nature and global cargo security. You can reach us at 978-317-3250 or email me directly at pete.mento at LLC. This podcast is also brought to you by Undeniable Technologies, constructing the backbone to global trade based on the standards of the world's largest trade organization, the known alliance. Undeniable is making global commerce faster, safer, more secure, and easier than ever before. Learn more at undeniable.net. From Washington,
1: D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete
0: Mento. I can remember my first days on a desk working in freight forwarding. They were pretty grisly, sitting there trying to use what limited typing skills I had to enter in data. And I can remember also having something when I was at Panelpina called PanMail. It was a satellite-driven way to communicate between offices. This, my friends, was high technology back in 1994, 95. I don't even remember. (laughs) With the advent of the internet, not to mention email, that all changed. Today we have James Combs from the good people at Vector AI trying to help us all manage this new expectation of how technology is going to deal with automation. You know, it's weird. We're all trying to come to grips with this change in the pandemic of really labor becoming a premium, trying to find folks to work. The amount of money one can make with a Customs House brokerage license right now is astounding. It's hard to find people who have both the talent, the regulatory licensure, and uh, the willingness to go from a job to a job. Add to that the complexity of the technology that we work with, as well as the desire to do the work, which in and of itself is difficult. You get a perfect storm. I've been fortunate over the past year or so to be working with a number of different freight forwarders and customs house brokers. I've gotten to see a lot of internally developed systems as well as external ones. i got to tell you, the things that are coming out of people's minds these days and the way that they're linking up and networking, they're positively incredible. I'm not ready to say that we're going to be replaced by technology. I don't think I ever will be. But I am ready to say that we're being augmented. We're being made better. And it's allowing brokers to take ourselves away from that soul-crushing part of our job, the part of our job that's really nothing more than throwing in content and data. And let us focus on what we really do enjoy doing, which is helping to guide people, giving them great advice, and showing them ways that we can add value to their supply chains. Exciting and interesting topic today and an amazing podcast with James, and I hope you enjoy it. Stick around. Welcome back to the Trade Geek podcast. I am excited that James from Vector AI has decided to join us today. As I mentioned earlier uh, in the season, we're spending time this, well, season, season four, talking about issues in supply chain and logistics and international trade that seem almost insurmountable sometimes problems. And uh, I was very fortunate that a mutual friend reached out to me to talk about the very interesting Services that James's company supplies, um, the things that they do, the technology that it works on, and uh, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and be coy. I like what your stuff does, man. I think it's pretty impressive. So we'll get to that in a second. Um, let's not uh, let's not waste a lot of time here. Why don't you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself?
1: Cool. Um, thanks, Pete. Um, great, great to be here. Humble to be on the show. Um, uh, yeah. I don't really know where to start start on that one, um, but basically, I'm I'm the um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of uh, of Vector AI. Um, we've been going since about two thousand seventeen, um, and what we do is we um, as as you kind of introduced us, we we automate operations um, for freight forwarders and, and customs brokers. Um, we use a technology that is you now otherwise known as as AI, um, but um, really the outcomes of what we do is what what's important. Um, we really help to relieve that kind of operational burden um, faced by kind of document and email operations in the space. And um, yeah, as I said, really excited to be here and tell you a a little bit more.
0: So um, be prepared for the silly questions now. I mean, you you, you don't seem like the kind of person who was forced through years of failure to end up having to work in global trade and logistics. Uh, You have a pretty impressive education and background so first of all where was it again that you went to school uh
1: i went to the first school i went to was a a school in the uk called imperial college i'll lead with that Mm -hmm. um and then um, i went to that little place in boston Uh, i went to i went to harvard um, and i went to the kennedy school Um, so i spent a glorious year um, in boston um, at harvard doing all the things i kind of wanted to do the first time around um, and kind of didn't, yeah, didn't get an opportunity, an opportunity to do it properly. Uh, yeah.
0: So did you lose a bet? Did you, did you wake up one day after having too much to drink and someone said, well, now you've got to go work in logistics? I mean, how do you make this <laughs> jump in technology? Did you see a hole in the game? Was there, how did you end up deciding this was a place you wanted to apply this technology? I mean, if, if you want the whole
1: story of like, I do. my... my I'm, I'm happy to go into the kind of all the details. So my, my very first job was at a, a random shipping company called OT Africa Line. it um, like a West African roll-on, roll-off um, carrier. Uh, based in, the office I was working at was based in a place called Birmingham in the UK. Um, and I was 17. Um, my mom, so I'm my mom's French. Um, my mom taught French to the CFO and she got me my first job, um, so totally used my connections there, um, <laughs> on, on, rece- on reception at this company. And I would basically spent the first kind of couple of weeks basically just playing Minesweeper because like nobody went to visit um, <laughs> and, and graduated from that to basically the back office. So um, I, they kind of tasked me with just kind of going through all the kind of documentation um, and so I was the one who was kind of opening these, just these giant boxes um, in their warehouse, kind of going through all their kind of BLs and all their documents and inputting it and making sure they were consistent and flagging the ones that weren't um, and kind of putting into their system. And they had these kind of, you know, these, these crazy systems where it was basically all like COBOL. Like it was, it was like, I, I would, I remember, I would memorize how many tabs it would take to get from like the container number to like the, the voyage number and so I could do it blindly right so I could just kind of look and not really look at what I was doing and I was consistent enough with like my kind of like like I could type so I did that for I don't know uh all summer basically so probably a couple of months um so that was my my very first experience um way back so I think that's probably what what got me what kind of that that ingrained into me um that that kind of problem set and then uh, I went to, I went to college. I did, I did biochemistry at university. Um, wow. and mostly cause my dad did it and I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I did that. Um, and then kind of graduated still was kind of clueless, did all sorts of crazy things. I worked at, I worked in a Christmas department in Harrods. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, I've done some, some weird stuff and, um, went traveling, got back, needed a job. And at the time, this is in like, 04 five, like the place to be was in, um, was, was finance. And so, Um, I was like, you know what? I want to challenge myself, and you know, I didn't come from a particular, like, particularly like a well-off background or anything. So, for me, it was like a really good opportunity to try and like make some money. And um, like you mentioned, I think maybe you'd you'd made kind of similar decisions in the past. But for me, that was I wanted to challenge myself and kind of give myself an opportunity to kind of like, I don't well. Build like build up like a safety net, and so um, worked kind of. Got, got into this bank um, in equities, turns out it was like equity derivatives and I didn't really know what the difference was. They shipped me off to New York, literally like three months after, which was just completely unexpected, but also just amazing. So I ended up in New York. Um, and then kind of two, the whole 2008, 9 kind of crisis happened and it um, wasn't a great place to be on like a derivatives desk, even though we didn't have anything to do with kind of all that kind of fancy mortgage stuff. Um, and so, Kind of things died down, and uh, I kind of always wanted to start my own company. So I ended up starting a furniture company, um, kind of moonlighting on the side. So I was still working at this bank, but I literally had nothing to do. So I started a furniture company, and the idea was to kind of just bring furniture from kind of uh, designers to kind of local, local designers and, uh, and kind of actually get that stuff made and, and then sell it. And so uh, ended up doing kind of going to China to figure out my supply chain and like, figuring out how to get all this stuff made, went to all the kind of the product fairs in Guangzhou and spent kind of a lot of fun times kind of there at, at the time. And it probably still is a little bit like Guangzhou and that, that kind of area was just, it felt like just there was so much just energy. And so it was amazing to go there and kind of source all this stuff and um worked with so our customers ended up being like i had these grand ambitions that we would kind of deliver this furniture make it accessible and all that stuff but ended up being super hard to scale that so we ended up selling to people like google and disney disney was a huge customer ended up doing a lot of kind of uh, furniture for disney's cruise ships hmm. and um so yeah had to figure out a lot of supply chain stuff there as, as uh, a company that, that did that um and did some amazing stuff as well like worked with local manufacturers too so worked with kind of some like, again, remember, it's like, oh, wait, oh, There was like no business around, right? And no, nobody was bringing any business. So one of our biggest suppliers was actually this kind of this, um, this family run company in New Jersey, who <clears throat> typically were kind of upholstering cars and that, that business just overnight just disappeared. And um, they ended up being one of our biggest suppliers. And they actually did our entire, like a large part of our Disney kind of um, product. Um, and we like, we kept them afloat. So. Like that, I I was just yeah. Like I was I was really proud of that, and it was the first time I had this kind of um, like a real world tangible <clears throat> like impact. Like people throw around the word impact all the time, but um, yeah, it felt like I was made, like actually making a difference, and and I was proud of that. We even have a piece in, in the MoMA. Just again, just like a shameless plug for that company <laughs> that I built. So anyway, so did that, and then I I don't know. Like things picked back up again at the bank, and um, I was offered a job, but I just couldn't turn down. So. I ended up um, kind of helping to set up first a metals business um, where I was working with hedge funds but also trade houses um, and helping them on the metal side. So doing a lot of hedging but a lot of kind of helping kind of finance the transport and um, not not so much the production but the transport of of these commodities around the world. And um, also ended up doing um, kind of moving on from there to doing energy as well. Um, still in London, uh, still in New York, but then eventually moved to London. Cause it was a bit more central for kind of a commodities thing. Um, and really shifted my attention to, to that. Um, I kind of left my partner long story short. I started off at furniture company with a, with an ex, and, uh, and I ended up essentially kind of, kind of selling the company to her and ended up kind of just embracing the kind of this world of commodities. And, um, like for me, like commodities in that kind of supply chain world, it's just, like that's where I want to make my career, right? Like that, just the ability to kind of go and um, kind of understand how things are made and and how it kind of fits into a given supply chain and all the little micro interactions that they have, right? um, Was just fascinating to me. And I'd get into kind of just, I'd I'd measure like uh, air conditioning unit production as like a proxy for like aluminum demand, you know, like that kind of level of detail. And um, so I loved doing that for a long time and had some amazing experiences um, kind of working with, Kind of these kind of like really fun and exciting funds, but also the trade houses that were doing that were doing the stuff, and um, and, I, and I really enjoyed that part of my career. Um, and then, like, always wanted to go back to building my own company, and um, and also there was this kind of increased regulation in the in the kind of finance world where it was it was becoming less interesting. I was, I was spending a lot more of my time on kind of regulatory stuff, and I wanted to kind of move away from that. So. That was um, how I ended up at Harvard. It's basically a segue to basically say, how do, I, how do I take all this stuff that I really love but kind of transition it in some way to a company that I can, that I can start? And um, so I ended up going to Harvard um, and focusing on trying try to make it as connected as possible. Um, there's a lot of this kind of like hindsight bias where you kind of look behind and you see, okay, yeah, I did this for all of these reasons and it was perfect. Like I had perfect reasons for doing all of this. I didn't, I kind of roughly knew what I wanted to do. And there's a lot of like fill in the blanks. Um, and, um, there's this great, there's this great kind of Steve jobs quote, right? Which is like, you know, you can't connect the dots looking forwards. You have to only connect them looking backwards. Like I kind of loved that. Um, and anyway, so if I ended up focusing a lot on, um, international trade and, and politics and doing some. Really amazing stuff. Worked with a a great guy called um, Robert Lawrence, Professor Robert Lawrence at Harvard, who done some really cool stuff in in trade policy um, with the WTO. And then also, um, yeah, I just did crazy things. So like like a bunch of negotiation and leadership courses. Um, I I mentioned earlier, I went went to North Korea for like 10 days. I don't think I fully understood how dangerous that was when I went. and uh, yeah, uh, so so that was that was an experience for sure. And then, kind of got back to the, Got back. To, I mean, finished that. Came back to the UK. Um, worked briefly at um uh, at, a, at a, like a VC firm, kind of to try to again learn as much as I could. And then and then started Vector. Um, and Vector was kind of um, kind of summarized all of my experiences in these different kind of different f- parts of the supply chain. And what it always boiled down to is operations. Like I can, I can take any of these businesses and kind of boil it down to say they're actually really just operations problems. Even a fi- even finance bit is just an operational problem. It's not really, like in my mind, there's not actually that much credit risk in like a, a lot of these kind of finance operations. A lot of it is just like operational risk. And, um, and that became kind of a central premise of what became Vector, right? Is to say, well, it, we could do all these great things, but really if you kind of f- follow that, like pull that string hard enough, like right at, right at, like right at the end of it, is, is pure just operations operational issues and that that was what informed and really what became vector is to say look there's there's a, a huge amount of things we can do in this space there 's the technology you now I mentioned AI in terms of what we are as a company earlier um, the technology to do what we do has only really been made kind of available in the last like two to three years so it 's this amazing opportunity to uh, to really impact a space where there is no kind of like standardization right there 's no there's no holy grail like API that kind of covers everything and makes everybody's life great. And like, it just like partly I think some kind of companies don't want that and it just doesn't exist. And so it's almost this perfect, this perfect industry to say, well, look, it's, it's completely parameterized. You know exactly what the inputs and the outputs should be. You can apply AI to the problems in this space. And, um, and on top of that, you can really impact it. And so it just felt like a perfect place to be. And so that's probably a long-winded way of saying how I got into logistics and automation.
0: Uh, Well, thank you for somebody who was was a little bit buttoned up at the beginning and said, well, I really don't know what to talk about. You gave me a heck of an intro there, man. That was gorgeous. Uh, And second of all, you're just like the rest of us, man. You're you're this this tech entrepreneur and uh, it turns out you're just like the rest of us. You knew somebody who knew somebody that worked at a freight forwarder and you got an entry-level job and now you're a titan of industry, my friend. Um, everyone <laughs> yeah. everyone that works in this business who's managed to have an executive level position that I know, I mean, we have a mutual friend, Phil. I believe he got his job at Expediters because he was, if I remember correctly, he was playing softball with somebody and he needed a job. And one of his softball friends said, come and work for this company. And that's kind of how that all started. Um, so you're just like the rest of us. That makes me feel a little better. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think
1: anybody at kindergarten is, is like, is, you know, there's no. there's not like the kind of a fireman, the, sp- like the firefighter, <laughs> of the space, <spacecraft>, like, <laughs> the and then there's a the little, there's a little, yeah, yeah, there's a little kid at the bottom, right? who's like, I really want to be afraid for forwarder. I, I yeah. don't think, yeah. uh, unfortunately, they just don't have the, um, yeah, the, the kind of market presence to do that. So, yeah. Um, so, uh,
0: who did you decide to start this business with? Was it, um, was it a couple of people? Was it yourself?
1: So just my co-founder. Um, so we were on a program called entrepreneur First in the UK, which is, um, kind of an accelerator for people who don't have co-founders basically. So I kind of knew what I wanted to do. Um, like I'm, 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 I'm 38. And, um, when I started a business, I was what, like 34, 35. Um, none of my friends wanted to do it with me. <laughs> none of them. Cause you know, they've, They've got kids they've got the mortgage they've got, they've got all of those things and I was the only one crazy enough to kind of like not not have that um, uh, although not do it properly I should say i, I do have <laughs> I do have kids I do, I do, well, a, a child um, I, I just didn't do it. I didn't do it the right way around I guess um, so but nobody was crazy enough to, um, to to kind of want to join me so Entrepreneur first was really a, a perfect place for me because it allowed me to kind of meet a, meet my co-founder. Nisarg um, and um yeah uh kind of didn't didn't look back i knew he was he was the one it was you know i w- i would say it was love at first sight um <laughs> it'd probably make him awkward he was he's really he's really good um he blows like just blows me away in terms of how good i mean he's twenty five which which um is uh, just just an incredible achievement because when i look back at how I, how i was when i was twenty five um i mean i did not have i don't know if i can swear on this show but i did not have my stuff together right i did not so um i'm amazed that he can do that and and run and run an incredibly complex um company um so just just i wouldn't be able to do this without him um and he is the no he's he's the he's the technology part of what we do he his background is is in is an ai he's a cambridge cambridge grad he, uh, he's far too humble, but he, you know, he got like a, he got like a full scholarship to, to one of the hardest colleges to get into in, in at Cambridge university. So he's, he's um, yeah, he's a, he's a bright cookie. And, um, and so, yeah, humbled to be to have been able to kind of kind of capture that um, at the source before you realized how, how good he was, <laughs> I guess.
0: Yeah. You're pretty lucky that way. I, I feel sim- the same way about my, uh, you know, my tech company uh, undeniable. I have a partner, Del Chavale and, He's definitely the brains of the operation, man. I'm, it, it's sad that I'm the eye candy. It's sad that the pear-shaped, overweight, bald guy is the, uh, is the eye candy. Um, so from, Wait, from don't, this-
1: don't sell, your, don't sell yourself short, Pete. I, I, I think the only reason I have this job is because I I I've, I've got great hair. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> like, it gives me like, maybe a few years more credibility than I deserve.
0: So from, from two people in an idea, you guys have grown to how many employees now? So now we're around 24, 25
1: and, um, and growing pretty aggressively. Um, I think we'll be double that by the end of the year.
0: And I know I work with the folks in the US, where else do you have operations? So we're based in
1: London, um, but we're, like, I don't think you can kind of be as myopic to kind of think, okay, we're a London based company and that's it, um, when your customer base is so international. And so we, um, well, our head of sales is based in the US, um, we have a um, a growing customer success team and and other salespeople in the US uh, as well as Europe. Um, we also, I and mean, we also have an Indian entity. So we are, yeah, we're we're pretty um, we're we're growing and growing in terms of geography. And it's one of those things that it was only really, I guess, it's always been feasible, but the last year and a half has kind of shown how feasible that can be with kind of remote working and all that stuff. And I think. What I want to do is I want to cherry pick all the best bits, and I think like our co- the company is a mirror of me as a founder, right? So I'm pretty international um, in terms of my background. I mean, I, I, I was telling you earlier. I mean, I I spent over ten years living in the U.S. Um, my parents are all over the place. I, I w- I'm pretty nomadic as a, a I guess as, as a person in the background and. And I think the kind of the company kind of reflects that and I want to, I, I want to cherry-pick the best of the best parts. I mean there's phenomenal talent here in terms of the, the Cambridge and the UK network in terms of the tech side um, but also you know, our customers are in the US and everywhere and we want to we want to be where our customers are and, um, and our sales and customer success teams are, are, are mostly based in the US and um, yeah we, we pick the best bits of all of that
0: Let's talk a bit about the technology. Um, uh, now, I'm going to do something that is probably suicide for, for, for an interviewer. I'm going to try to explain to you from my perspective, having witnessed it and played around with it, what I think I see. And then I want you to tell me how very wrong I am. Okay? Sure. Sure. Yeah, you're going to say, oh, God, Pete. All right, so here's, here's what I've experienced with using vector AI. What I've been able to ascertain from working with it is it's a system that allows, again, from my experience, a freight forwarder. And I don't know if, it, if it's being used by other entities, so you can change my mind there, but from the perspective of a freight forwarder, customs house broker, international logistics company, what it's allowing my clients to do is to have documentation of all sorts, internal and external. And that documentation does not have to be templated. It doesn't have to be, um, It can be in any form, it can come from any source and it can be uploaded in all manner of uploads. It can be done as an email, it can be sent in as a PDF, you can feed it in directly in all sorts of different ways. And then the system can upload that data into an operating system. Um, Over time, through the use of technology, which I assume is machine learning or AI or got to remember, dude, I'm an economist, so math is fake to me. It's just, it's all very esoteric. It learns by mistakes that are pointed out to it and tends to not make those mistakes in a repetitive nature so that the user is freed up to do other things. And these repetitive tasks of data entry are eliminated. How close am I? I
1: mean, pretty pretty damn close <laughs> yeah yeah pretty 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 good yeah, yeah. um yeah like I, I think that's that's the core for sure the core bit is that kind of understanding data in whatever form it is um and uh using ai machine learning however you want to define it um to understand that data in, in a in an intelligent way uh in order to populate like yeah like a downstream system right like a tms um but in my mind, um, the way I see our business is that's kind of just that's table stakes, right? That's 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 the basics. It's it's make sure make sure you do all all the data entry parts. It's to it's to understand the data from yeah commercial invoices, arrival notice, bills of lading, all, all of those kind of different types of documents, um, and understand understand the content and the context. That's that's great, and that, that's actually incredibly hard to do. And as you say, kind of a lot of the points of of how we react and and uh, learn dynamically as well is, is a big part of it, um, but I'm, I'm more interested in what you can do with it after, and the what you can do with it is, is the really cool bit, it, it's, it's, it's like if you can understand the content the way we do, right, and that's what, what we spent three and a half, almost like close to four years now building, <laughs> pretty, pretty behind the scenes, right? We've been building this for a long, long time and we've been building the entire infrastructure and the ML pipelines to do all this properly. Um, but it's all table stakes, because this is what you need to do to then take the next step. And the next step is once I have that information is how do I use it? And how do I use it proactively uh, to, to improve my business? And it's really about, it's, it's things like, okay, if I have an AP invoice and I wanna, uh, and it's coming and it's, it's part of, we think of, of, of shipments and uh, life cycles. And if I look at an AP invoice and um, it's part of that shipment and part of that life cycle, and there's, there's a bit of, yeah, once I understand that data, I have to compare it against what I've accrued in my, in my downstream system, for instance. And I have to use that to determine whether it's a match, whether it fits, what happens, is it an exception, all of this stuff. And really the way I think about it is to say, well, actually it's kind of like, these are all projects. And they're all self-referencing projects. As in, if you understand the content of that project, then you can do a ton of things with it, right? You, can, you understand that the AP Invoice should go to the AP team or, or whatever. And that's, it's, it's, I, I think that's really the secret sauce, is why if you understand the content and context, which we do, and that's the hard bit, then it allows you to really get a handle on automating some of the, some of the parts of the lifecycle of a shipment in a smarter way. And that's, that is how I see this this business and what we, and really fundamentally what we do. And that's, wh- and that's so impactful, right? Because that's, that's like 70, 75% of what operators do.
0: And I'm, I'm even more deeply geeked out about this. So for me, uh, I, I can only imagine what a data scientist could do with the amount of information a freight forwarder could gather from it. So as a, as a, as a freight forwarding, there are freight forwarders who look at information and see it as a tool. There are freight forwarders who look at information and see it as as a weapon. So I I look at the expediters of the world. I look at, you know, to a degree, there's a couple others I would put in that. But let's just just take those upper tier freight forwarders who say from this data, I can gather information about how I can strategically put us in a position to score more client opportunities, to be able to serve our clients better, to make geographical impact, to make decisions about where we ought to go as a business. You're able to gather so much information from commercial invoices, how we pay our vendors, how our customers pay us, how we collectively stage ourselves to to do everything from consolidate our freight, air freight and ocean freight at origin, how we end up breaking that down when it comes in, how we um, manage our domestic transportation. All that information can be resident in one place. Right now, it's not being collected in a meaningful way or where it is being collected. They're probably only collecting what's on the surface. You're going to be able to, I feel like I'm selling for you. Feel free to give me a commission. You're able to, to, in a meaningful way, probably at some point, pull all of that information Be able to sort it, be able to collect it, sort it, and then empower someone to use it, hopefully in a visual way, to be able to make better decisions with a business. That gets me excited. Because if you think about the number of documents that a freight forwarder has from such a vast majority of different sources, I don't know what it's going to take to standardize the input, but you found a way to standardize the collection.
1: Uh, that's that's why this is so powerful. It is that it is that database. I love the kind of the reference to kind of the, the weapon part. Like, what we do fundamentally is we we want to give freight forwarders those t- the tools to make those decisions and, and to and to use it as a weapon. Finally, because you're right, it's si- it, a lot of it is siloed. A lot of it at, at, at so many different levels. Right, uh, in terms of the, just the pure kind of operational best practices level. Uh, the kind of customer service level, the kind of the anticipation that you can and should be doing. I mean, I I could. There is not nowhere near enough time on this on this um, on this <laughs> section to get into it. Um, the amount of as yeah as you said the, the amount of information that is there that that freight forwarders have that is inherent in their business um, that can and should be used to provide better service to their customers, better operational efficiencies. Um, as I said kind of anticipation stuff like without re- revealing my entire roadmap because we're very course, clear about where we're going mm-hmm. um I it's I I think it's a a um an amazing opportunity it is greenfield at the moment every freight forwarder will be doing this in two to three years time oh I agree I, I don't doubt it yeah and, and, and that's the, exciting but
0: yeah now, now think on this at what point at some point the connectivity between carriers and freight forwarders being able to gather this information and you know i I work with with a very large trade organization that talks about interconnectivity there has to be a way to bring trust where passing this data along from them this is the true great frustration of my life is the carrier could be gathering this at a point so much earlier and then finding ways to share it with the forwarder with the customer with the vendors and the fact that there's no means of trust between them to be able to push it across, it's um, it's a lost opportunity where if there were carriers, air ocean that were gathering this and then finding a way to share it, it would save so much time and effort and be able to create a, a more compliant supply chain as well. So um, I don't know if you had comments about that.
1: Yeah, trust trust is, is, is huge. Trust is the... I mean, it underpins all of this, right? It, it's why documentation exists. Um, it's why these relationships exist. It, it's um, it, it's a fundamental part of not just forwarding, but of of, of finance, of insurance. <laughs> like that, an entire thing is built on, of basically, do I know and do I trust who I'm dealing with? And uh, the the documentation, the the operation stuff, is really just a proxy for trust, right? It's basically to say, look, I don't really fully trust you but it's great it's okay cuz i've got these kind of this paperwork i've got these essentially these contracts and they're stamped and like that's that's a proxy for trust really and that's um there's there's a, there's a lot of things you can do there but i think one of the other words that describes this market is also like it's a it's a power there's a power dynamic and i'm not sure the motivations are there for different players to relinquish some of that power and i think that's that 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 power element um is what makes standardization so hard nobody is incentivized to do it because who, who would you give that to anyway? What central organization would you have and would you entrust with doing that? And what benefit, like who benefits? I, I don't know. I don't think that's clear. And which is why what I think what we're doing is a really great workaround on that because we can say, well, look, we don't care. We don't, we, it doesn't really matter how things come in. You don't need any stabilization. You can keep doing what you've been doing all along. We just make that better. And I think, um, that is, a, is a, quite a neat workaround and, and can maybe start bringing about some of that trust in, in the future. But um, first things first, like it's not standard. We deal with problems that are, that are here today, not some really kind of like, like, I like the intellectual part of me likes these kind of complex problems where, where you know, like blockchain and things like that. It, from an intellectual perspective, that's great. I love it. But from a practical perspective and a solving problems today in the here and now, I don't think it's quite there. And so we're we're about solving those
0: practical problems first. Without giving away anything it's about you know those practical problems, what excites you? Where do you see the business going? If, if uh, you know what what do you feel comfortable talking about? Where you're you're hopeful? You know, given the success that you've had right now, where you where you believe this could be a solution down the road? Um, Again, where you feel comfortable talking about it. Where do you see Vector AI? Where you and I, you know, when when it's okay for me to fly to London again, and I, uh, you know, I take you to a dark, dingy pub someplace, and we share a drink. What will we be talking about? That's the next uh, the next great mountain that you've climbed and planted your flag. What are you excited about for the future?
1: Yeah, that's that's a tough one to reply to without.
0: Be revealing everything um now then don't you know but whatever you feel like you can talk about if not for if not for you then the industry you don't have to talk specifically yeah. about vector ai but what are the things that you're hopeful that your industry can probably engage in
1: yeah i mean look, the, the the overall automation piece as i mentioned is it's it is greenfield uh everywhere i turn i see opportunity and i think where we are now in the kind of automation space is kind of where visibility was like two, three years ago, I think. And um, and so I think that's just the use cases for what we do and more. We're only scratching the surface. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount that you can do up and down um, what I call like a life cycle. Um, so I, 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 like for me, that is incredibly motivating um there's almost too much to do and when you are obviously a position like, like we are i have to be very mindful of our resources and focus and focus is incredibly important um but it really is like it's like drinking from a fire hose at the moment there's just so much that you that we can do um in this space and i think the way we think about it not to give like humbly i think i honestly think that in in a few years time it'll just seem so obvious it'll seem so obvious that this is how you should do it <laughs> yeah right? and it's one of those things that today just isn't and i i think it's partly just understanding and and that's fine um but i i, th- I think it will be in 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 a few years time it will just be like oh why like why didn't we think of that and um look that's 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 one of, the, one of the best things, well, look, again, hopefully, that's one of the best things you could, uh, you could aspire to as a founder, right? I mean, there's some of that, you know, call it ego, or call it whatever, but there's, you no. Know, we want to be right. We, we want to we have a non-consensus view that ultimately ends up being, some, being right. And, um, you know, we've been, as I said, we've been going now for, for a long time. And i've been explaining what we've been doing for a long long time and i've i've seen a lot of blank expressions when when we've been when we've been explaining what we do um and um and bit by bit i'm seeing a bit more understanding which is great and that's kind of validation um, yeah 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 look it's it's you can only hope for that as a founder i think so um well i can
0: tell you from my, my perspective what you're doing is absolutely incredible i've seen it in action and uh it's amazing. So with that, we're going to get to the three questions that have nothing to do with trade. It's clear you've never listened to this podcast. So, I have.
1: Um, I've listened, I've listened to one, but I forgot.
0: <laughs> personally offended. But here are these questions, and uh, you can confirm for me that you have not, I've not brought them to you ahead of time. You have not. No. Okay, no. so question number one, what was the first car that you ever owned? How'd you get it, and what happened to it? I
1: wish I had a cooler story. That no, really It's okay. Like, I'm sure. I'm sure other people have way more interesting stories You'd than me on this. You'd be surprised. I have the the first car was like a VW Polo. Um, oh, Polo! For those of you who
0: don't know, it's much like the old Volkswagen Rabbit. Yes.
1: Okay. The right. Polo. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's a Volkswagen Rabbit, I guess. Yeah. Polo, the Polo. Um, yeah. And it wasn't all that long ago. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't learn to drive until pretty late on. I'd always lived in different cities. Never found a time. My parents never taught me. So, um, yeah, I, I was taking a lot of buses and trains. <laughs> so, um, how
0: old were you when you learned how to drive?
1: Late 20s. Late nice. 20s. It's one of my biggest regrets because oh. um, I really love – I really enjoy it. And um, I wait, I've, lost, I've, lost, I've lost like a decade of driving, um, which is a shame.
0: Wow. Okay. So, what happened to that car? Do you still have it?
1: Uh, no. So, I had um, – so three years ago, I had uh, my my daughter came along, and um, it didn't seem big enough or safe enough. So I I, I drive like a super dad car. I drive um what, here it's a Nissan Qashqai. I, I mean it's I bought it. It's got like a hundred thousand miles on it. It's um it's the most yeah it's a, it's a dad car. It's <laughs>
0: very nice. Yeah, it's well, uh, doesn't okay, get me that's... much credit. All the dads listening know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I get it. All right. Question number two, the first job that you can remember having that paid you an actual paycheck. So the first job that you had where you collected an actual paycheck.
1: And we've, we've already covered, we, we covered it, right? Okay. That was the, right. the, the, the receptionist job at a shipper. Um, right. I, think, I think they paid me like
0: five pounds an hour or something like that. Oh, that's painful. I mean, how are you expected to get by making five pounds an hour?
1: I mean, I was. Uh, yeah, who, who knows? Who knows? I mean, I was. Yeah, living living with my parents, and um, and it was basically saving up for, for college. Um, is where it all went to. So um, yeah, didn't go that didn't go that far. Yeah, that's
0: not a lot of money. Um, no. yeah. right. And then lastly, if 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 I if if the laws of time space. And physics did not apply, and Uncle Pete had a magic wand. And I can wave it, and I could give you any job you could possibly conceive other than a job that you have now. What would that job be? Oh.
1: And I, I really should have I, I wish I'd known these beforehand, Pete. <laughs> so there's um, not something
0: that you wish you could do?
1: I, I I I love what I'm doing I love what I'm doing now. Um I really love what I'm doing now. The the uncertainty of it is and and the potential of it is is something I could only have dreamed of. Um Definitely. I don't know. I mean I I like I do enjoy I do enjoy travel. So maybe something like a pilot um or maybe you could pay me into kind of live in one of those in one of those cabins in some island to kind of look after it somewhere. I mean I'd I'd happily do that for a bit.
0: Okay. Yeah. Or maybe we found the one person who's content and uh, happy with their no. life. It?
1: <laughs> I, I uh,
0: it would be a lie.
1: <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> there's awesome. always, there's always There's always stuff that's wrong. And, or maybe um, you're no, the yeah.
0: Anthony Bourdain of technology, and you need to have your own travel show. That could be pretty fun too.
1: If that would be the dream, like you know, one of those kind of uh, like motorbike, like motorcycling around, I don't know, Vietnam or something. That would yeah. be um, yeah, would be fun.
0: All right. So, um, if anybody wants to get a hold of you or learn more about the company, where should they go?
1: Um, go to our website, vector.ai. AI. Um, yeah, everything's on there.
0: Tremendous. And again, I think what you what you're doing with your company is positively astounding. And I can't wait to see what happens over the next couple of years. I appreciate you coming on the show so much. I can't. Uh, I can't tell you again how much I appreciate it. Uh, expecting big and exciting things on the next iteration of what you're doing. And uh, hope people reach out to you. Thanks a lot, James. Sure. Very generous. Thanks, Pete. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.